welcome to the Palmwood Podcast, part of the teaching ministry of Palmwood Church in Oviedo, Florida, where we love God extravagantly, love people with humility, and mentor others to do the same. Here's Pastor John with an introduction for this week's message. Thanks, David. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Palmwood Podcast. What does it mean to worship God in truth? In John 4, Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the well that God desires worshipers that worship him in spirit and in truth. So what does it mean to worship in truth? This was a really important message for many in my congregation. You see, so often when we think of truth, we think of sound doctrine, and and that's a good thing. But the problem is that this is not the place where we should start. The Bible and the doctrine it teaches are only true because its author is truth himself. Remember, Jesus told Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Truth is not just a doctrine or a proposition. Truth is a person. And that gets to the very heart of our message this week on the podcast. We praise and we thank God for what he has done, but we worship God for who he is. Knowing who God really is, is the key to worshiping him in truth. We're going to be uh, studying John chapter 4, verses 19 through 26 and 39 through 42. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, They urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Amen. Thank you, Michael. Did you catch the... The last phrase there, we no longer believe because of what you said, but now we believe because we've met the guy. We've encountered him and believe that he is 
the Savior of the world. Um, this really gets to the heart of our message today. I, I want to start this way. You know, Jesus said to the woman at the well, God desires worshipers that do what? That worship in spirit and in truth. And we spent last week talking about what it means to worship in spirit. So today we're going to talk about what it means to worship in truth. How many of you would agree that truth is a good thing? Truth is, is an important thing. Truth is an essential thing. Are we all together so far? If somebody is speaking to you, would you rather have truth or falsehood? So even if it's bad news, right, you'd rather have truth than falsehood, right? So a long time ago, as a young preacher, I said yes to a call to a church that I knew was a troubled church. Um, and after I had made the, Catherine and I had prayed it through, and we knew, we, I, I knew in my knower that I was going to that church. There was no doubt that I was going to that church. Um, somebody who had a long relationship with that church that was a, a, a common friend said, hey, I hear you're going to such and such a church. Let me take you out to lunch. And I'm thinking, oh, it's a celebration lunch. That was not what he intended. <laughs> And this person spent the entire lunch naming all of these people in this church that had for years been problem people and had had various levels of responsibility in causing previous pastors to leave under duress. And as, as the lunch started, it was different than I expected, but then I started thinking, well, this is probably good information for me to have, but the, the longer lunch went on, the more I was thinking, oh, God, what have I gotten myself into? I hadn't even started yet. My start date was down the road, and I'm, I'm hearing these things, and I, I, it was a long drive home, and I'm... I'm playing the conversation over and over in my head, really saying, Lord, I don't know what to do. I really don't know what to do. And those of you that know my bride know that she is a woman of wisdom. And so I told her when I got home, I said, this is what happened. And in her wisdom, she said, why don't you call Dr. Umidi? Well, Dr. Umidi is one of my seminary professors who over the time of my seminary also became a friend. We were still in connection with each other. So I made an appointment to go talk with Dr. Joseph Umidi um, about this whole scenario. I mean, I knew the church was troubled. That was not news to me. But it was, it was the level of trouble now that I was, uh, was exposed to that, that bothered me. And I went and I had a, a good long conversation with Dr. Umidi. And he said something to me. He gave me advice that I have used for the rest of my career and I would give to you as also very good advice. And here's what he said to me. He said, don't ever base your relationship. He was talking about pastoral relationship, but this is good for all relationships. Don't ever base your relationship with people on what someone else has said. And he went on to tell me that it was my job as the new pastor going in to get to know all of these people myself. And he said to me, 
you will know within just a few weeks who the power brokers really are. And you'll also know who the people are that are going to be in your corner. It will become very evident. But make those determinations based on your own experience, not based on the words of someone else. And let me tell you something. That turned out to be probably the most important advice I received for my entire career there. And here's why. Because the majority, hear me, the majority of those people about which I was warned became some of our closest friends and supporters while I was the pastor of that church. And had I gone in jaded from that conversation, I may never have had those valuable relationships, some of which, which last to this day. Now, why do I tell you that story? Because, friends, so much of the angst, the anxiety, the frustration, the anger that we feel toward other people is based in misinformation and deceit. That's just the truth. How many of you have ever had the wrong idea about somebody and maybe even avoided them until you got to know them and realized they were nothing like what you thought or you had been told? How many, have you ever, that ever happened to you before? Yes. And I'm here to tell you today that is exactly what our enemy has done with humanity about God. We have been sold a bill of goods about our loving Heavenly Father, and we've bought it. And the world around us, and even a lot of believers today, are operating in their relationship with God based upon false information, based upon misdirection. Friends, Satan has done this to humanity about God, and it has directly impacted our worship of the Most High. And if we're going to talk about what it means to worship God in truth, we have got to blow that lie up this morning. Let's pray. Father, um, it is a blessing to have many days to prepare. It's a little anxious for me to have just a few hours to prepare. And so I'm turning this message over to you this day and praying that by your spirit, my words will actually be your words. My thoughts will actually be your thoughts. And this message is really your message, as it should be every Sunday anyway, for these, your precious people. Use me as your vessel, use me as your conduit to communicate what you must communicate about yourself today, that we who are here and those who will watch on the media feed Lord, that we will know you and then be able to worship you in truth. Thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, to worship in truth, my computer keeps going to sleep. Sorry about that. Um, we need to know who God really is. 
Isaiah 43 verse 7 is one of my favorite verses in Scripture. And here's why. Because God in the prophecy of Isaiah says that he has created every human being for his glory. Now that, that to me, that tells me something because it tells me all these people that are out there on the other side of the window and, and those that we, we meet on the street and those that, that wait on us in restaurants, that every human being has been made for worship. Think about that, right? How have we defined worship in this series? We've defined worship in this series as reverence, adoration, and glory, right? It's worship. God created us for glory. We have been made to worship, but our enemy is the father of lies, and a major part of his plan is to ruin our understanding of who God is and also to ruin our understanding of who we are, what God has created us to be, preventing us from having a right relationship with God. Sometime when you have a chance, just jot these, these passages down. Take a look at Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 15. Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, and Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 11 through, I think it's 18. In these two sections of prophecy, we get a glimpse into the throne room of heaven and, and the activity that was happening when Satan was cast out of heaven. It tells us the story of, of how Lucifer, the light bearer, an archangel of God, became Satan, the deceiver, the destroyer, that is now after human hearts. The reason that Satan was expelled from heaven is he tried to usurp God's throne and God's worship. He has wanted the worship of God from the beginning, and so it would make sense that part of what he would try to do is to prevent the worship of God now that he's been expelled from heaven. From the beginning, he has been deceiving mankind because he has to keep us from two things, understanding who God really is and understanding who we really are. And he certainly doesn't want anybody to understand who they really are in Christ redeemed. He knows his future, and he has to take as many, with us, as many of us with him as he possibly can. But in spite of everything that he has done to us and in spite of everything we've done to ourselves we truly can be and are fully redeemed in Christ. When we rightly understand who God is and who we are in Christ, it will woo us toward beautiful and authentic reverence, adoration, and glory. So let's get to know God this morning. The first point on your outline is that God is infinite, and there's all kinds of passages. I've tried to give you all kinds of scriptures that you can go back and you can study through to see this. But I want you to understand this morning that God does not have a beginning. And God does not have an end. Uh, God is, if you remember back to, um, it was during our, our kingdom series, which was almost two years ago now, that we talked about how God uh, is eternal without beginning and without end. When we talk about eternity as human beings, we all have a beginning. We have a start date, Right? And so when we talk about eternity, we always think about eternity in a forward direction, right? But see, God doesn't have a start date. God also has an eternity in a backward direction. God is eternal from everlasting to everlasting. And that is even seen in his name. In the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh, the name actually in Hebrew has no vowels. 
And so therefore, it's the vowels that tell us in Hebrew what the tense of the word is. uh, Yahweh has no tense, and so therefore, it is a name without a time limitation. So when Moses is standing before the burning bush, and he says, okay, so tell me the name of this God that I can go back to my people and tell them who is sending us, and what does God say to him? I am that I am, is what the the literal translation would be. But because there is no vowel, what we call vowel pointing, in the word, if you look in a lot of your translations, there'll be a footnote that says, I have been that I have been. And it is just as accurate to say, I will be that I will be. God's very name has no tense. It's past, present, and future. He is infinite. Our God is infinite in every way. He's infinite in age. He's infinite in space. He's infinite in knowledge. He's infinite in power. He is limitless. And here's the thing. Satan is going to come to an end, and he knows it. God is not, and Satan's got to keep us from understanding that truth. Satan does not want you to know how vast God is because it will drive you to worship. He doesn't want you to see God Uh, He wants you to see God as one made in your own image after your own likeness, doing your bidding, answering your prayers. If you can keep God in a box, he knows you won't worship that kind of God. Second of all, God is immutable. That's a fancy theological word. What it means is he doesn't change. God is unchanging in his being, in his character, in his purpose, in his ways, in his promises, in everything. God remains constant and consistent. Our God is faithful. Our God is dependable. His faithfulness and consistency in that we know that he will provide for all of our needs. Satan certainly doesn't want you to think that you can count on God in every situation for everything. That happens to be the truth, but he doesn't want you to know that. He wants you to think that God's holding out on you. Do you remember Eden? Do you remember what God said to Eve? Did God really say? Right? Trying to plant a seed in the woman's mind that God's holding out on her. That he's really not all that he says he is. Satan wants us to think that God is at at least fickle because you won't worship that kind of God. God is self-sufficient meaning God is independent. God doesn't need anything. And here's the thing. God doesn't need us. How does that make you feel? But here's the flip side of that coin. God wants us. God desires us. He doesn't need us because God doesn't need anything. But he wants us. He desires us. Satan doesn't want you to understand this. He wants you to think that, that God is, is not in need of you and he only lets you hang around because he's a nice guy. Or, or even worse, maybe he's a user. He uses us for his, his own purposes. As one who doesn't, doesn't want us and, and only, wants us for, only uses us for his own pleasure because we won't worship that kind of God. But that's not true. Think about this. God doesn't need us, but he created us because he wants us. And when we talk about God's love, we're going to find out why. Thirdly, or fourthly, God is omnipotent, meaning he is all-powerful. God has unlimited power. God is able to carry out anything he wills. There is no being greater, 
There is no being more powerful. Interesting to me that Satan has historically made people think that he and God are equals. You ever notice that? You ever seen that lie cropping up in, even in churches? Like there's this cosmic battle going on between light and darkness like they're equal. You know, science does not even, or science even tells us that's not true. I can prove it to you. Every time you turn on a light, what happens to darkness? It flees. Science itself proves that there is no match between the two. There is no match between God and Satan. But Satan has created this lie, and even in the book of Revelation, we see that he creates an unholy trinity to deceive the people. Satan, the beast, the false prophet. It's kind of this, he's, tried, he's got this God complex thing, and he's trying to be just like God, but he's never been like God. Never. Even in his best condition before he fell, he was only an angel, a created being. God is the creator. He's always been on top. But if Satan can get us to believe that he has equal power with God or that God somehow cannot carry out his own plans for good and righteousness in our lives, we won't worship that kind of God, see? God is omniscient, meaning he knows everything. He's all-knowing. He knows everything that is actual. He also knows everything that is possible. There is nothing God doesn't know. There is nothing that God does not understand. Nothing. God knows the truth about everything. He knows himself above everything else, and God is a God of truth. Satan doesn't want us to see the depths of God's understanding. He certainly doesn't want us to understand how we are known and loved as his beloved children by the all-knowing one. He does not want us to grasp that God knows everything about us and still loves us and offers to redeem us, if Satan can get us to think that God really doesn't know us, really doesn't understand us, we won't worship that kind of God. God is omnipresent, meaning he is everywhere at the same time. We've already noted that he's infinite with respect to time and space, so God is present everywhere at the same time. There is no place that God isn't. Again, no limitation. Think about this. There is no place anyone can go and escape God. It's not possible. Satan has a vested interest in our feeling disconnected from God. Satan has a vested interest in us feeling even abandoned by God. Satan wants us to see God as the one who walked away from us or, or who leaves us alone or even afraid. Whoa, he doesn't want you anymore. That there is a place we can go in his absence. It's not true. You wouldn't worship a God like that. God is wise. God's wisdom has no end. God always chooses the best outcomes for every situation and the best way to bring about those outcomes in every situation. God always brings about the best results. Satan doesn't want us to see God as the one who desires and works for the best in our lives. If we see God as unwise or unable or unwilling, we won't worship a God like that. God is faithful. God not only deals in the truth, but he operates based on truth and is therefore faithful and trustworthy in all things.
God will always do what he said. God will always accomplish what he plans. God will always fulfill what he promised. He is true and faithful. But if Satan can get us to think that God is someone who will let us down, we can't worship a God like that. God is good. God is not only good, he is the standard of good. Everything God thinks is good. Everything God plans is good. God is good. He is the essence of goodness. And the scripture tells us that all good comes from him. But if Satan can make you and me think that God is self-centered or, or evil or, or mean or intending to do us harm in some way, we won't worship a God like that. God is just. God's goodness and justice go hand in hand. Everything God does is right and for the right reasons. But if Satan can get us to think that God is somehow unjust, unfair, we won't worship a God like that. These next two come together. God is merciful and God is gracious. God is merciful in that God does not give us what we deserve. God is gracious in that God extends to us blessings and favor we do not deserve. God doesn't give us what we deserve. God does, God does give us what we don't deserve. We deserve judgment and wrath. Instead, in Christ, he extends to us the fullest of love and his blessings. But if Satan can get us to think that God is judgmental, up there on a cloud with a lightning bolt getting ready to zap us, or graceless, he knows we won't worship a God like that. God is loving. Dr. Wayne Grudem helps us understand God's love in this way. Listen to this. God's love means that God eternally gives of himself to others. I love that definition. Jesus tells us that this love existed before the foundation of the world. In fact, arguably, and here's the important piece for us, this love is why God created mankind in the first place. Go back to what I said. God doesn't need us. God doesn't need us. But if God is in and of himself exuberant love, unlimited infinite love, you know why he created mankind? To be an object of his love. And we're made in his image and in his likeness so that we can reflect that back then in glory. God knew what he was doing, you see. But if Satan can get us to believe that God really doesn't love us, and, and he, he created us because he does, but if Satan can get us to, to think that God doesn't love us, God really doesn't care, he won't give of himself on our behalf, well, we won't worship a God like that, you see. God is holy, meaning he's different. He's not just different than all the other gods that human beings have created and worshipped over, over our history, but he's different from everything, you see, because God is the creator. Everything else is the creation. Completely different essences. Completely different essences. He's separate. He's outside of humanity. He's outside of creation. He's outside of time. He's particularly outside of sin. But throughout the scriptures, God calls humanity to also be holy, right? He invites us into his separateness. God calls us to be separate, to come apart with him. 
and he made it possible in Jesus Christ. Satan knows that if he can get us to think that God is aloof, apart, disinterested, we won't worship a God like that. Finally, God is glorious. God is infinitely beautiful and great. God is the sum of all that is desirable. God exists in undefinable light and brilliance that draws all creation to himself. Did you look at the words of immortal and visible this morning we sang at the beginning? It describes this kind of God. But if Satan can misdirect us away from that glory, which is the purpose for which we were created, right? God says all mankind was created for my glory to reflect that back. Getting us to see God as self-centered and self-aggrandizing, no one will worship a God like that. If we don't truly know God, his attributes and his character, if we don't know God in truth, we won't worship him. But there's more. Because see, it's not just that Satan messes up our understanding of who God is. Satan also messes up our understanding of who we are. When it comes to worshiping God in truth, second only to the truth of who God is, is the truth of who we are. Listen, you are made in the image of God. Now stop for a moment. Did you listen to all the ways, the attributes that, that we use to describe God just now? Did you get that big description of the God that we worship and the God that we serve and the God that loves us? You are made as a reflection of that. You are made in that image. You are made in that likeness. Satan doesn't want you to know that. He doesn't want to know he doesn't want you to know who you represent and why. He doesn't want you to understand the authority that you wield because of that. In all creation, as grand as the, the Rocky Mountains are, I've actually seen the Swiss Alps and they make the Rocky Mountains look small. You know, as, as incredible as there are sunsets over the ocean, the Pacific Ocean, or sunrises over the Atlantic Ocean, as incredible as there are colors of flowers and birds and animals and butterflies and all kinds of creatures that, that, that are all over the earth. As, as intricate as, we've, I've talked about this before, that the, the most amazing thing, the thing that drove me most to bow before God as creator was inspecting my own three children when they were born. You ever held a brand new baby in your hands and looked at, the little teeny lines around each knuckle, the perfect little teeny fingernails, it's, it's unreal. There's no way that somebody can hold a brand new baby and not know there's a creator. It's not possible. You see, we represent this God. We are made in his image. Second of all, we are deeply loved. Let me just say, God doesn't hate you. God is not angry with you. 
He took all of that anger and all of that wrath and he put it on his son. We talked about it at the table earlier today. Now you have to accept it. You have to receive it. But it's already done. It's a, it's a past tense thing. It's already been done. You see, he took all of that anger and that wrath for sin out on his son, and if you receive it, you are now free from it. He loves you. You are deeply loved. If you are in Christ, your identity is a beloved son or daughter of God. You're his child. Satan doesn't want you to know how dearly loved you are. Third, you are worth the life of God's Son. Did you know that? You want to know how deeply loved you are? God gave his one and only Son to take your place. That's how precious you are. That's how valuable you are to our God. Satan has a vested interest in making you think you're worthless, but you are not, and you never have been. And fourthly, you are designed to rule with God. And this is the thing that scares Satan most. Humanity was created to reign with God from the very beginning. We were designed to be co-regents with God over all creation. Look at chapter 1 of Genesis. We are created to rule and subdue the earth. That is dominion language. He gives us the domain and we are to rule on his behalf as his regents. We're designed for this. And in Christ, that has been restored. If you have your Bibles, turn for a moment to Ephesians chapter 2. Remember we talked last week about the Spirit being made alive again when we come into Christ. As for, you and your, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the Spirit who is now disobedient and though, it is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. That's dead. That's the bad news. But then in, in the very next word there that Paul uses is the word but. That tells you there's good news coming. <laughs> but, verse 4, because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Listen, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. What do you think that means? Where is Christ? Theologically, if you think back to your, your Sunday school days, when Jesus ascended into heaven, where did he go? He went to the right hand of the Father. Do you know what the right hand of the Father is? It's the position of authority. It's God's right-hand man. Where do you think that comes from? And Paul tells us we are seated where? With him in the heavenly realms. Don't believe me? Take a look at 2 Timothy 2. Second Timothy 2. Verses 11 and 12. 
Here's a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also... Anybody got, got the passage open? Reign with him. You see, it's been God's purpose for us all along that we would reign with God. And if that's taken away from us, it's usurped from us in the garden. The rest of the Bible story is about God's attempt to, to redeem mankind. It finally happens in Christ. And those who are in Christ, those who are made alive and can therefore worship God in spirit, again, we talked about that last week, now also then are restored to their rightful created position to reign with him. And Satan really doesn't want us to know that. When we talk about worshiping God in truth, friends, the foundation of Jesus' statement to the woman at the well is about these two things. That we would know God truly. And that then, with the restoration that comes with Christ, we would know ourselves truly. Can you see that, that being clear on these things, having these truths soundly embedded in our hearts every single day will draw us, will woo us to bow before our God in real, in authentic reverence, awe, adoration, love, and glory, magnifying Him throughout all creation. But if we don't know who He is, if Satan can distract us from that or if he can distract us from who we really are, we won't worship a God like that. And it just becomes motions. Jesus says, you know what? There's coming a time, and because he was sitting there with her, he says, has now come. Because I'm here, Jesus says. I've arrived. I'm not going to worship God on that mountain or in Jerusalem. It's not tied to a location anymore. We talked about how we all are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Where we go, we take the glory of God with us. He said, God wants worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. They will enter in, in real, true, spiritual worship, authentic spiritual worship. And as they do that, they will worship him for who he really is. Understanding who we really are. And friends, that's a game changer. And that's what it means to worship God in spirit and in truth. So I leave you with this question today. Where has Satan deceived and misdirected you on these points? Thanks for joining us for the Palmwood Podcast. If you'd like more information about Palmwood Church and its ministry, see our website at palmwoodchurch.com. Have a blessed day.